The destinations discussed in this episode are on the traditional lands of the Kootenai, Salish, Kalispell, and Coeur d'Alene peoples. Eventually, all things merge into one, and a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over rocks from the basement of time. On some of the drops are timeless raindrops. Under the rocks are the words, and some of the words are theirs. I am haunted by waters. The waters that haunted Norman McLean were those of the Big Blackfoot River, which flows from the heights of the Montana Rockies into the Clark Fork of the Columbia River, just east of McLean's hometown of Missoula. Over its course, it passes through some of the most incredible scenery on the planet, a landscape so beautiful that few authors have ever been able to craft literature that even comes close to doing it justice. In his masterpiece, A River Runs Through It, McLean became one of these few, condensing into a surprisingly small number of pages the story of family, love, beauty, and fly fishing that closely parallels his youth in the early decades of the 20th century in and around Missoula. His understanding of the Montana landscape and its people runs deep. Just how deep becomes clear when you read his works with a geological eye. His Rocks from the Basement of Time, for example, are the Belt Supergroup, a series of geological formations in the Rockies that date back nearly one and a half billion years and contain some of the oldest fossils of visible life on the planet. Many of these rocks do indeed contain ripple marks, more on these later, and timeless raindrops that fell along the ancient North American coastline. McLean's reference to them in the closing lines of his greatest work shows that he knew and appreciated the amazing story these rocks tell. Perhaps even more intriguing from an earth scientist point of view, is his assertion that the river was cut by the world's great flood. As the son of a Presbyterian minister, it seems reasonable to assume that this refers to the biblical flood. But it wasn't only members of the religious community that had cataclysms on the brain in the era and region in which a river runs through it is set. Just downstream from Missoula, a self-styled maverick geologist was claiming to have found evidence of a flood that would dwarf anything any living human had witnessed. By the time McLean's book was published in 1976, a hypothesis that had begun at the lunatic fringe of science had been generally accepted by the geological community, thanks in large part to one of his contemporaries in Missoula and with profound implications for how we view the world around us. Whenever I read McLean's words, I can't help but think that it was this idea and this flood, or as it turns out, these floods, that he had in mind while penning them. After all, anyone as well-versed in Montana geology as he was must have been aware of the enormous debate that was raging while he, his brother, and his father fished the Big Blackfoot. Even more importantly, those very same waters that haunted him and the valley in which he spent his formative years turned out to be central to the story of the floods, both giving them their name and settling once and for all the debate about how such catastrophic events can occur and how they can very literally change the face of our world. Welcome aboard the Voyages Podcast. I'm John Orkut, and on this voyage down the haunted waters, we'll be exploring one of the great geological stories ever told. The Missoula floods rocked the Pacific Northwest thousands of years ago, 
and had an equally lasting effect on the science of geology in the 20th century. Their story is far too complex to tell in just a half hour, so which one we'll be tracking over the next three episodes. We'll begin at the beginning, of the floods themselves and of the scientists that studied them, both of which have their origins in the Missoula area. After starting in the mountains of Montana and Idaho in this episode, in later episodes we'll head first into the channeled scablands of eastern Washington to see the almost unbelievable fingerprints the floods left on the landscape, and then to Oregon's Columbia River Gorge in Willamette Valley to ask why these floods were so important, and why they continue to matter today. The story of the Missoula floods is one of natural processes playing out at an almost unimaginably huge scale, but it's also a surprisingly human story, with unexpected implications for some of the Northwest's most popular destinations and historic sites, as well as a couple of larger-than-life protagonists. This pair of main characters emerged onto the geological scene in the early 20th century, when their field of study was still very closely tied to its Victorian roots. We'll start our story and meet the first of these characters in 1910 in Missoula, where the events that Norman MacLean would chronicle in A River Runs Through It were beginning to play out, and where one of the great dramas in the history of natural science was about to unfold. as I am for all things fossil, one of my favorite businesses to visit when I'm in town is the Lake Missoula Tea Company. As you'd expect, most people drop by for the really outstanding tea they package and brew, which I also appreciate, but part of the reason I keep coming back are the blends named for Ice Age mammals, and the logo featuring the silhouette of a Colombian mammoth. The prehistoric connection might seem like a random one to most visitors, as might the name, since Missoula is notably lakeless, defined instead by its rivers. But Lake Missoula is, or rather was, a very real body of water, and its name has roots nearly as old as Montana's iconic author. At the same time, the haunting waters of the Clark Fork and its tributaries were leaving indelible marks on Norman MacLean in his writing. Joseph T. Pardee, a professor at the city's University of Montana, was coming to realize that those same waters had left ghostly marks on the landscape itself, and that those marks told just as compelling a story as any work of literature. These marks are easy to see, and you don't even have to leave the U of M campus to see them. Rising from the eastern edge of the university is Mount Sentinel, immediately recognizable by the giant letter M high on its slopes, as opposed to the L on Mount Jumbo just across the river. These mountains, and many others throughout western Montana, have faint lines on them. They're most easily seen after a light snow, but you can pick them out in any weather. Pardee's tenure at the university overlapped with the late lives of some of Missoula's pioneers, who referred to the marks as old buffalo trails. But Pardee could tell that they were too extensive and far too linear to have been the tracks of any animal. Instead, he saw them for what they were, wave terraces. If you've ever been to any sandy or muddy lakeshore, you've seen a wave terrace, the short but distinct notch carved into soft sediments by constant wave action. It can be hard to even notice these structures without wading into the water, but if you were to somehow remove that water, the terrace would remain, forming what's often compared to a giant bathtub ring showing the former extent of the lake. Pardee not only recognized that the so-called buffalo trails were the remains of an ancient lakeshore, but by tracing them across mountainsides throughout western Montana, he was able to reconstruct the size of the lake that formed them. Pardee always wanted to get straight to the point, 
named the body of water in the title of his paper, Glacial Lake Missoula. You can walk in his footsteps not only to see firsthand the evidence that allowed him to identify the lake, but to start wrapping your head around its huge size. The highest terrace is about a thousand feet above the U of M campus, and the rest of Missoula's valley floor level downtown. A fairly short, but steep, hike up either Jumbo or Sentinel will take you to a marker showing this maximum lake level, where you can gaze down on a landscape that was once entirely submerged. Pardee mapped out the terrace on which you can still stand across Montana and calculated the surface area at just under 3,000 square miles. If it existed today, it'd be the 22nd largest lake in the world by surface area, sandwiched in between Athabasca and Turkana. At 500 cubic miles, its volume would put it just outside the top 10, only a little shy of Canada's Great Bear Lake. But if these numbers don't mean much to you, head to a site north of town to get perhaps the best sense of the lake's true scale. The National Bison Range, on the lands of and now operated by the tribes of the Flathead Reservation, includes a scenic drive up Red Sleep Mountain. Today, the mountain is a massive pyramid in the midst of the vast Flathead Valley, but it was once an island in the middle of Lake Missoula. A viewpoint at the high water mark provides a dizzying vista across the valley to the ramparts of the Mission Mountains. And when you realize that where you're standing and those distant peaks were once both shores of the same lake, it becomes clear that Montana's ancient body of water was really more of an inland sea. Glacial Lake Missoula hypothesis conjured up a dramatic image of a flooded Montana, and it made a lot of sense based on the wave terraces he identified across the state. But every good hypothesis also requires a mechanism. You can't just say that something happened, but need to come up with a plausible explanation for how it happened. In this case, it meant that Pardee needed to explain how such a massive lake could form in the first place. His answer was simple enough, and has been supported by many lines of evidence over the past century. Lake Missoula was, in essence, a giant reservoir that formed when the Clark Fork was dammed. Dams were certainly familiar to Pardee, living as he did in a part of the world whose potential for hydropower and agriculture was just beginning to be tapped. But the dam he envisioned was not formed by concrete, packed sediments, or any other human material, but by ice. As its name suggests, Glacial Lake Missoula was a product of the Ice Age. Modern dating techniques suggest that it formed between 15 and 13,000 years ago when giant glaciers covered almost all of North America north of what is now the Canadian border, with lobes extending south into the U.S. Glaciers, especially when they're big enough to block entire rivers, leave behind very distinct fingerprints, so to identify where the dam was, all Pardee needed to do was head downstream along the Clark Fork until he found those fingerprints. He encountered them just across the border in northern Idaho, where a lobe of the great North American ice sheet left marks that are still very clearly visible today. Some of the telltale signs were the result of erosion. As glaciers flow very slowly down from mountains, they pluck rocks and grind sediments off of valley walls, widen them to create broader, flatter valleys hemmed in by steep, often vertical walls. If the resulting U-shaped valley fills with water, it creates a deep lake, such as Lake Pondere, the lake into which the Clark Fork empties. Farragut State Park, south of Sand Point, 
is probably the best place to see the marks left behind by the giant glacier that dredged the modern Lake Pondere and dammed the ancient Lake Missoula. Not only can you see the steep cliffs scoured out by the ice sheet, but the sediments left behind when it retreated, the second distinctive calling card of a glacier. Because of their huge size, glaciers are one of the few forces in nature capable of carrying house-sized boulders, which can be transported for hundreds of miles and dumped in the glacier's tracks when climate warms and the ice melts. Because these rocks are often nothing like the ones native to the landscape in which they wind up, they're known as erratics, and you can hike to a big one in Farragut State Park. But glaciers also act like enormous strips of sandpaper, grinding away at and wearing down all the surfaces they pass over. This means that glaciers also carry with them the dust-sized particles known as glacial flour left behind from this process, and this mix of boulders and glacial flour, together referred to as till, is a sure sign that glaciers once existed in an area. There are many deposits of till all around Lake Pondere, again, particularly in the vicinity of Farragut State Park, further implicating the glacier that carved it as the prime suspect in the formation of Lake Missoula. This is the note on which Pardee wrapped up his 1910 paper. During the last ice age, a huge glacier that also carved Lake Pondere dammed the Clark Fork, backing up the river and flooding valleys across western Montana up to a depth of about a thousand feet, creating one of the world's largest lakes in the process. His hypothesis was sound, he had a plausible mechanism, and both were well supported by the evidence, meaning that his paper made relatively few waves in the geology community. But mysteries about Lake Missoula remained, and Pardee knew it. It was these unanswered questions that would prove central to the story of the Missoula floods, and you can see the natural features that posed these questions back in the city that gave them their name. hinted at one of the oddest features of Glacial Lake Missoula. It apparently wasn't a single lake, but several. If you look up the hill from the University of Montana, you'll see not just one wave terrace, but many. The thousand-foot bathtub ring that shows the high water mark of Lake Missoula has somewhere in the vicinity of 40 twins, each running in parallel lines at lower levels along the hillside. There are two possible explanations for this. Either the lake emptied slowly and in fits and starts, with pauses where waves could cut out new terraces, or the entire lake emptied relatively rapidly several times, refilling to a slightly lower level each time. Incidentally, we know this last part because, if the water depth had increased, the waves of the growing lake would have obliterated the older terraces. That we can still see them means that Lake Missoula got smaller over time, not larger. The lines on Montana's mountains can only tell us so much about how the lake shrunk. But near the town of Nine Mile, which, confusingly, is actually more like 30 miles from Missoula, you can see some much more telling evidence that comes not from the shores of the lake, but from its deepest depths.
Think about every lake or pond you've ever waded in. The sediments you felt between your toes were almost certainly very small, no bigger than sand, and probably very muddy. That's because, below the upper couple of feet, where wind and wave action can stir up the water, the vast majority of lakes are very calm environments. In a river, small, muddy sediments tend to get picked up by the current and carried downstream, leaving behind the large, polished stones we tend to associate with running water. But in a lake, these small sediments settle to the bottom, forming muddy lake beds that eventually get preserved as rocks full of small grains, mostly invisible to the naked eye. You can see rocks like this in a road cut near Nine Mile, showing that, at least most of the time, Lake Missoula behaved much the way you'd expect a body of standing water to. If you really know what to look for, these rocks can tell you even more. In most lakes, especially in mountainous areas like Montana, spring snowmelt causes the streams that feed a lake to swell and dump a lot more sediment into the water, while in the winter, smaller sediments predominate. Lake beds often consist of layers that alternate between spring and winter sediments, known as varves, and counting the number of varves can tell you how many years it took for a whole sequence of rocks to accumulate, in the same way that you can age a tree by counting its rings. In the case of the Nine Mile Rocks, that period of time was just over a thousand years. But periodically, these ancient lake beds are interrupted by layers of rocks containing sand-sized grains, far larger than what you'd expect to see deposited by even the most dramatic of spring snowmelts. These bigger sediments are what we expect in flowing water like a river. So in effect, what this rhythm of small-grained and large-grained rocks is telling us is that every now and then, once every one to four decades as we can tell by tallying up the varves, even the deepest, calmest parts of Lake Missoula were the site of strong currents that swept away the small sediments that would usually accumulate there. The Nine Mile Rhythmites, as they're known, provide some of the most compelling evidence that, rather than just shrinking in fits and starts, the entirety of Lake Missoula would occasionally empty out rapidly, causing the currents responsible for the sandy layers. Counting these layers tells us that this happened roughly 40 times, confirming the evidence of the wave terraces above Missoula. This solved one mystery about Montana's inland sea, or rather, inland seas, but it raised an even bigger question. What happened to all that water? Why did it routinely disappear from the region's valleys? And what does it even look like when one of the world's largest lakes drains in the blink of a geological eye? Pardee would tackle these questions later in his career, in particular in a 1945 paper with the characteristically understated title Unusual Currents in Glacial Lake Missoula that opened the rest of the geological world's eyes to the wider significance of his research. The first question, why did the water disappear, wasn't too hard to answer. Quite simply, the ice dam broke. After all, there's a reason we tend to build dams out of solid, reinforced materials such as concrete as even a small breach can have disastrous consequences downstream. Ice, though, is far from an ideal dam material, and can be worn away by waves and currents, floated up by water, and of course can just plain melt if temperatures rise enough. We still don't know for sure which of these happened with the Idaho Ice Dam, 
but for whatever reason the floodgates opened dozens of times at what's now Farragut State Park. And once the dam had burst, just how long did it take the lake to drain? Maybe the process was slow by human standards, taking months or even years to unfold. Though still amazingly fast for a field accustomed to thinking of time in terms of millions of years, this might lead to swollen rivers downstream but avert anything truly cataclysmic. Pardee, though, was an expert at reading the landscape, and everything he saw told him what actually happened was far more dramatic. Near the town of Eddy, not far upstream from where the dam once existed, you can still see marks high on the valley walls that could only have been made by rushing water escaping from Lake Missoula. This gave Pardee the height of the water passing through the Eddy Narrows during the draining of the lake, and he could estimate the size of the valley using basic surveying techniques. With these numbers in hand, he calculated that the water would have been flowing past Eddy at 9.46 cubic miles per hour, which may not sound all that impressive at first, but is the equivalent of 2.89 billion gallons per second. Still not impressed? Numbers like this mean that Lake Missoula would have emptied in just over two days. Open up a similarly sized valve in the much smaller Lake Erie, and it would drain in just half a day. Perhaps you, like me, need a visual to really drive home just how much water was moving through the area and how fast it was going. If so, head back to the Flathead Reservation, to Camas Prairie. At first glance, it's similar to so many other high valleys in Montana, broad, covered in grasslands, ringed by scenic mountains. But at its north end, you'll see something odd, a series of elongated hills running roughly parallel to one another. The first comparison you might be tempted to make would be to sand dunes, and presumably most early 20th century geologists would have drawn a similar conclusion. But not Pardee, who seems to have taken to heart Sherlock Holmes's maxim. Eliminate the impossible. Whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Pardee's precise language is worth quoting because it illustrates his gift for understatement. The hills, he argued, have the form, structure, and arrangement of ordinary ripple marks, but are so large that the term ripple mark seems inappropriate. You've probably seen ordinary ripple marks on every sandy beach you've ever visited. They're the rhythmic, wave-like bands carved into sand just under the surface of the water by wind-blown waves and ripples on the surface. They're actually fairly common to find preserved in rocks, including in the belt supergroup so familiar to Norman MacLean. But whether they're millions of years or a few seconds old, ripple marks tend to top out at about an inch in height, separated by at most a few inches. The Camas Prairie ripples, though, can be up to 50 feet high and are spaced hundreds of feet apart. Only an unbelievably strong current and vast quantities of water could sculpt something like this, and only the rarest of natural events, such as the sudden draining of a huge lake, could make this possible. To put the jaw-dropping size of the hills in perspective, for a normal series of ripple marks to look like these ones, you'd have to shrink down to about a sixth of an inch high. More than any other feature of Lake Missoula, the hills of Camas Prairie illustrate the almost incomprehensible scale of what happened here the 40 or so times the dam failed. The fact that so many geologists who had passed by the prairie completely misunderstood what they were looking at is not a knock on their observational skills, 
but a testament to Pardee's ability to make sense of the stories told by the environment around him. Even when those stories had played out on a stage on which we would be little more than insects. And Pardee was well aware that there were similarly oversized features downstream that told the next part of this story, and that showed what happens when you unleash this much water. He'd probably seen many of these features himself, but by the time he published his 1945 paper, he would have been very familiar with the work of another geologist, one who was younger and brasher, but equally skilled at reading the surreal landscape of the inland northwest. This young rabble-rouser was in many ways Pardee's polar opposite, but their work would mesh together to cement one of the most revolutionary ideas in the history of Earth sciences as fact. Voyage Down the Haunted Waters. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to join me again on the first Thursday in September, when we'll meet the other major protagonist in the story, and travel through the coolie country of eastern Washington to see how he devised his heretical hypothesis amidst some of the most stunning scenery in what might just be the most scenic state in the continental U.S. And if you're looking forward to the next couple of installments of this story as much as I am, I hope you'll do what you can to build its audience. The best way you can make sure that as many people as possible hear it is to rate, share, like, and subscribe to Voyages on the podcatcher of your choice. Though, of course, you should absolutely... This particular story plays out on such a huge scale that there are very few places in western Montana, the Idaho Panhandle, eastern Washington, and northern Oregon that haven't been shaped by it. So on top of the usual links that I'll share on our website, voyagepod.wordpress.com, I'd strongly recommend visiting the Ice Age Floods Institute, who do a great job guiding people through Lake Missoula and the enormous... If you do drop by the Voyages site, please drop me a line with any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, which you can also do via email at voyagepod at gmail.com. You can also learn about the music featured in each episode, which in this case was music inspired by Lake Missoula by Montana composer Steve Seroff. Thanks again for traveling with me through the haunted waters of Lake Missoula, and I hope you'll join me for all the voyages to come.